and verse 17, 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. There's a distinction all throughout in the book of Titus, for example. God calls us to be a peculiar people, separated, be holy as I am holy, distinct from those that are around us. So what we see is this Egypt being this place of refuge. That's where we begin life. That's where we start. That's where we, and it's comfortable, and it's familiar. And ultimately, there is a point in which we realize our need for Jesus Christ. And at that point, we either follow him or we don't. And when we do follow him, he calls us out to be separate. He calls us to be distinct. We're called out of the world. Here is, here is Israel. And, and what I want, to, want you to notice is that they're going to go back to bondage, but they're not going back to the same bondage. They're not going back to Egypt. They're going to Assyria. That's where they're going to be exiled. They're going to be living in a strange land, living in a place that is not theirs, under the regime of somebody else that is contrary to and, and really opposed to their system of belief and value. But they're not going back to the same bondage. So in many respects, as we look at this and we see this description of uh, not returning back to Egypt, but returning and letting the Assyrian be his king, we have this illustration of our justification, the singular act where God declares us to be righteous. Because we're not lost. We're not forsaken. We're not thrown and cast aside in lieu of somebody else. In Romans chapter 3, verse uh, 23 and 24. And I apologize that I can't quote verse 24. I'll stop my head. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ Jesus. We have this declaration of our righteousness. We are freely justified by his grace through the redemption that is Jesus Christ and in him alone. Titus chapter 3, verse 7. Titus 3, 7, if you'll turn there. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're not justified by anything that we've done. We're not justified by any works or accomplishments or anything that we may hold as valuable or anything that we may use to soothe our conscience. We might even go to church. We may tithe. We may read the Bible. We may do those things. But apart from faith in Jesus Christ, those are still filthy rags. There's still rags of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21. We read here that God made Jesus Christ to be sin so that we could be made his righteousness. And we understand that the, right, the level of righteousness, the degree of righteousness that God has demanded and required is his righteousness. Not our own, not any standard that we might establish, but his righteousness. So in Jesus Christ, for he has made him to be sin for us, that Jesus would take the place. There was this exchange, this atonement where Jesus became sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So when God looks at you and I in faith in Jesus Christ, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ, 
not my righteousness, not your righteousness, but the righteousness of his perfect son applied to us. We're redeemed out of that, we're given that, and we're declared righteous, and that is the reality of where we exist today. Our life, as we read in Colossians, is hid with him in the heavens. That's the reality. Now, we exist here today, and we, we suffer, in some respects, the effects of sin in the world around us. We experience them, uh, the hardship, the grief, the, the, the things that are associated with sin. But that doesn't mean that that is where we abide. We've been delivered from that. As we look at Israel and we see their reaction to what is happening here, it says they refused to return. Israel's instinct ultimately was to return to what they knew. If you turn to uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 4, just write it down. We've already looked at that in the past. But in that chapter, that's, that's where the king of Assyria discovers and it's, it's exposed that Israel has made these alliances with Egypt. They're trying to go back to what they know. And in many respects, when we encounter struggles and hardship in life, sometimes we revert to those things that are familiar. Right? We all struggle with the flesh. We all struggle with that nature that exists that Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. The things that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And what I want to do, that's what I don't find myself doing. Sometimes we revert back to that. Sometimes we return to that which is familiar, which is more natural for us. But notice that God doesn't abandon his people in their sin. He doesn't leave them there. Israel is not forsaken, nor would the church, nor would you or I be forsaken by God because we fell into sin, because we committed sin, because we had a moment of weakness, for lack of better terms, where we reverted to the flesh, where we succumbed to the struggle that we have with the effects of sin all around us. In Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews 13 Let's look in verses 5 and 6. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And we're going to encounter those things where we don't know what to what to do. We see uh, in this particular context, we see we perceive the success of those who are engaged in sin. We we perceive and and wrongly so in many respects that somehow they're getting away with it. You remember the sons of Zebedee, and and they asked Jesus, "Why don't why don't we just?" Why don't you just call down fire from heaven, right? They're getting away with it. It's a misperception. We trust God. We trust him in faith that he is at the appropriate time and with the appropriate motive and with the appropriate means and method doing everything that is necessary 
God is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish. So we perceive things incorrectly, but we have to remember that God will never leave us nor forsake us. Just because we may be having some struggle as a result of the effects of sin around us. And that person appears to be getting away with whatever they're getting away with over there. Doesn't mean that God has rejected us. As we've talked about numerous times, studying through the book of Hosea, referencing Hebrews chapter 12, that if we are receiving any correction from God, that we do so only because we are his children and only because he loves us. And if we don't receive that correction, then as we read here in Hebrews 12, we are bastards and not sons. We can boldly say, the Lord is my helper, with absolute assurance, with absolute confidence, without any wavering of faith, that the Lord is our helper. And therefore, I can go about my business, not fearing what anyone might do to me. His will will be accomplished, his plans and purpose in me, through me, and around me will be done. But God is going to correct Israel in their response and their refusal to return. They're, I mean, over and over then, again, God has called them to return to him, to repent, to turn from what you're doing, your idolatry, your, your adulterous relationship with all these pagan gods, your forsaking of me, and come back. And over and over again, they've rejected him. Jump with me in Hosea chapter 11 down to verses 10 and 11. Now, as we, as we look at these verses, there is some prophetic utterance. There are some things yet to happen, and we've encountered this more than once through Hosea. Some things that are yet to happen for the nation of Israel. He says, they shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. They shall tremble as a bird out of Egypt and as a dove out of the land of Assyria, and I will place them in their houses, saith the Lord. There's this looking forward to of what we read about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. That's yet to happen. For the nation of Israel, for God's people here, when they look at him that they've pierced, there's some, some trembling. There's some understanding that we have rejected him, that we were those that he came to, his own that he came to, and we didn't receive him. But there's also this little bit of hope in here. They shall walk after the Lord. There are those in the nation of Israel, we talked about this as we studied through Romans a while back, that not all Israel is God's Israel. Right? The church doesn't replace Israel. Just to make that very plain. The church does not replace Israel. However, not every Jew believes in Jesus Christ. And the same standard of righteousness exists. And the only way to attain that level of righteousness as a man, as, as fallen sinful mankind, is through faith in Jesus Christ. So not all Israel believes. Not all Israel is God's Israel. There's this looking forward to. There is something yet to happen here for the nation of Israel. Verse 6. And the sword shall abide on his cities and shall consume his branches and devour them because of their own counsels. 
the word branches, it means, it means gates or mighty men. It, those things that you would use as a means to separate you from your enemy. That's what it means. So ultimately, what is God removing? He's removing their perceived security. Their mighty men, those that, those that would stand at the gates and defend the cities, their political alliances that God has, uh, that have been torn down. If you go through and you read through Second uh, Kings, uh, you'll you'll find that here is this pact that's made with Egypt, and what happens? The king of Assyria goes over and beats up on Egypt for a while, and then comes back. He takes them out of the equation. They're they're no longer there. What God has decreed to happen to Israel is going to happen. He removes all their perceived security, and all of this ultimately is because they will not repent. We understand that. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 30. Now, you'll remember, because we've talked about this, Isaiah was a prophet to Judah, not to Israel. But we find a similar thought in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1. He says, woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. This is a description of, of Judah before they go into captivity in Babylon. It's also a description of Israel here in Hosea. That here is God calling them back to himself over and over again, and they take counsel of all these things. They see the, the Assyrians coming down. They see everything. The writing is on the wall, and they refuse to seek the Lord about it. But they take counsel of every, and everything that they can see, taste, touch, and feel. There is no faith in Israel. In Psalm 106, which is an unattributed psalm, doesn't tell us who wrote it, but it describes the reason for Israel's exile. It talks about uh, their, their, their idolatry. It talks about their rejection of God. It talks about um, all of those things. And in the middle of that, there's also a confession of their sin. And ultimately, that song concludes with praise and thankfulness for God and his deliverance. The end result of all of that realization that here is God faithful through all of this was a prompting to serve him in reciprocation of love. Now, I want to look at just a few verses in Psalm 106, but if you want to take that as something to read this week, it will give you some further insight into God's perspective, if you will, with his people Israel. Let's jump in here. Let's look at verse 6. Psalm 106, verse 6. At this point, we kind of, we encounter the psalmist with this confession portion of the psalm. He says, we have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. And it goes on to describe what they had done. It talks about them forgetting God who delivered them from Egypt, how they fell into idolatry, how they began to serve these pagan gods, how they were adulterous to the very faithful God of their fathers. In verse 13, they soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel. 
There was no trust. There was no waiting upon the Lord to see what he would lead them to do, what he would call them to do, what he would do on their behalf. There was no trust. And the last verse here in Psalm 106 that I want to look at is verse 39. Thus were they defiled with their own works and went a-whoring with their own inventions. Which is exactly the illustration that God uses in the earlier chapters of Hosea to describe Israel's relationship to him. They were defiled by their own works. They'd fallen into idolatry. All the gods of the land that were already there or who they're worshiping. He goes on and he, in verse 7, and he talks about my people are bent. In other words, they're, they're, that, that's their habit. That's what they're uh, bent to. That's what they're uh, wanting to. That's their pursuit. My people's bent. Our people are, my people are bent to backsliding from me or to turning away from me. Though they called them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. And this is the nation of Israel. My people are bent. Their, their, their habit is to turn from me over and over and over. That is their common practice. That is their go-to mode in their interaction with their creator is to turn away from him, to backslide. In 2 Chronicles, I'll just turn there. 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verses 1 through 11. I didn't realize it was so long. 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verses 1 through 11. This is an example of their backsliding, okay? Uh, now we encountered Judah, and Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel. Now you remember, that was one of the one of the feasts that all of the men of Israel were supposed to go to wherever God established this place of worship, the temple. And this is, in this day, it's in Jerusalem. You come there once a year, Three times a year, rather, excuse me, three times a year, and Passover is one of them. And all the men come. For the king had taken counsel and his princes and all the congregation in Jerusalem to keep the Passover in the second month. Verse 3. For they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not sanctified themselves sufficiently, neither had the people gathered themselves together to Jerusalem. So you have two things happening. Number one, the people aren't coming. Number two, it says that the priests haven't sanctified themselves sufficiently. In other words, there aren't enough hands on deck amongst the Levites to get the job done. If you have every man bringing his Passover offering, and there's going to be some work to be done. Right? There's, there's some work to be done. Now, they don't have, there's more to unpack, but long and short, those are the two reasons. Okay. Now, here's Hezekiah. He's the king in Judah. And where does he send letters to? Israel, the other kingdom. He says, guys, let's do this that God has called us to do. And the thing, verse 4, please the king and all the congregation. Everybody, people in Judah are thinking this is a good idea. This is something that we should be engaged in. This is what God has called us to do. Let's do it. I'll take a message over here to Ephraim, I'll take one to Manasseh, I'll take one 
to the other tribes. Let's go. So they established a decree to make proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba even to Dan, and they should that they should come to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem. They had not done it of a long time in such sort as it was written. I'll just tell you that Israel has not been doing this for a long time. They're all about worshiping their idols. They're, they're worshiping the, the, all the things that they're worshiping, but they're not worshiping God. And Judah, for the most part, has been okay, but they've had some ups and downs too. They're going to send this out. So the post went with the letters from the king and all his princes throughout all Israel and Judah, according to the commandment of the king, saying, you children of Israel, turn again to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he will return to the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the kings of Assyria. Right? This is after they've gone into captivity. This is, this is not before. But what's happening here is a call to repentance by Hezekiah. By Judah, as it were. And be not like your fathers and like your brethren, which trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, who therefore gave them up to desolation as you see. Listen, Israel, you understand exactly what happened because you rejected God. Don't be like those who didn't walk in faith, who weren't obedient to the things that God called them to do. Now be ye not stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord. And enter into his sanctuary, which he had sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God with the fierceness of his wrath, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For you, if you turn again unto the Lord, your brethren and your children shall find compassion before them, that lead them captive, so that they may come again into the land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful, and will not turn away his face from you, if you return to him. Here's Hezekiah reminding them of the faithfulness of God, of his compassion, of his desire, as we're about to enter into in this next in the next section of this chapter, to extend mercy. Verse 10. So the post passed from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim, Manasseh, even unto Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. They weren't particularly receptive of this call to repentance, of this call to obedience, even though they'd seen the hands of the Assyrians take most of them into captivity. Right? Only a few were left, excuse me, only a few were sent back, as it were. And they were sent back so that they might be those who would help them, that the Assyrians worship, quote unquote, the gods of this land. They were sort of like those on, on in the Areopagus that wanted to not miss anything. So we have the idol to the unknown God. Just in case we missed one. So the Assyrians send all these people back in. We understand that's where the Samaritans came from. And they sent some, some Jews back. Listen, we need you to go in and teach them how to worship your God over there. Because things aren't going well. And here is Hezekiah sending this letter, calling them to repentance, calling them that they very well know we fell into idolatry and God corrected us heavily, harshly to the extent that he would send us into exile. And when they received the letter, this call to repentance to this, let's do what God said, 
They were scorned and they were mocked. They weren't well received. Nevertheless, diverse of Asher and Manasseh and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. There were a few, but the vast majority didn't want to participate. There's a lot of parallels with the church today. Because God is still telling us, this is what I want you to do. Here is my word. This is the completion of my revelation to you. Everything that you need is right here. And when we talk to people about taking God's word seriously and walking in accordance with it, having a worldview that would say, this is the source and the foundation of truth. This is upon which we will build our lives. You're laughed and scorned and mocked. People don't want to hear it. And all the more as the day draws closer. In Psalm 81, if you'll turn to Psalm 81 with me, we find in some respects an interjection of God's desire. Uh, and Psalm 81, let's begin in verse 10. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would none of me. I gave them up under their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me, and Israel had walked in my ways. I should have soon subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. God tells his people, listen, I would, all you have to do is open your mouth. Receive from me all that I desire to give you. Is if they wouldn't. They wouldn't hearken to my voice. They would have nothing to do with me. As we looked at earlier in, in the first few verses of chapter 11. I think it was the first few verses of chapter 11. The more I called to them, the further away they ran. If they repented, I would have soon subdued their enemies. I would have turned my hand against their adversaries. We made a statement a few weeks ago that God uses only the correction that is necessary to bring about the desired response. In other words, he's not going to deal harshly, any more harsh than he has to deal with any one of his children to get them to turn. He gets to do so in perfect understanding and an absolute wisdom of where your heart is and where my heart is. He knows you and me better than we know ourselves. And so therefore, his uh, while we may have had fathers in this life who would correct us according to their own desires and understandings, and while that may be somewhat flawed, because as much as I would like to be like Jesus, there are days that I'm not like Jesus, right? We're not perfect. We're corrupted by sin. We're only redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But God, who is a perfect father, corrects perfectly. His imperfect children are not always receptive to the correction that he sends. And will buck against it over and over, such that he has to escalate 
whatever correction is necessary. Turn with you to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21. Jesus gives a parable along these, these lines. And he's going to say it a lot better than I just. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husband that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Right? We understand what's happening here. This guy owns this property. He gets it all ready, plants a vineyard, puts somebody in charge of it. And when it's time to go and collect what's rightly his because he owns the property, they take his representatives and they kill him and they stone another. Verse 36. And again, he sent other servants more than the first time and they did like did to them likewise so here are the representatives of the owner of the land of the master and he's sending them and they're killing him and last of all he sent them his son saying they will reverence my son they'll show the proper respect to my son but when the husbandmen saw the son they said to them amongst themselves this is the heir Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard comes, what will he do unto those husbandmen? What's he going to do to those who took his representatives, his spokespeople, and killed them? And ultimately, when he sent his son, who he assumed would be rightly reverenced and respected, and they killed him as well. The response of Jesus' audience is this. He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbands, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Right? They're going to be removed, obviously. And it's going to be given to somebody else who will show the proper respect, who will walk in step with the master. Jesus responds in verse 42, did you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Right? We understand from Isaiah that he came unto his own, his own received him not. This is speaking of Jesus Christ and it's speaking of the son that was sent and who was put to death. The stone that the builders rejected, the foundation, that upon which we are going to build our lives, there's no other foundation and that which is laid in Christ Jesus. But he's going to be exalted. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Therefore, he says in verse 43, I say unto you, the kingdom shall, of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Jesus' audience are Jews. There's going to be those who are, <laughs> are going to be removed and I'm going to give it to another nation. When we read about what, what God records for us in the New Testament as the church, we are a nation, a holy nation. Those who were not a nation but are now a nation. Bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall it will grind him to powder. 
And when the chief priests and the Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. They understood full well exactly what Jesus was saying. He said, you are poor stewards. You were walking like your forefathers before you who would reject me time and time again. And I had to escalate and send different representatives over and over and over. And you rejected their counsel. You rejected their call to repentance. You rejected every person that I sent you. And then I sent my son. And you said, we have no king but Caesar crucified. God's people are bent on backsliding. This is their habit. This is the nation of Israel. This is what they do. And if we're honest, it's often what we do. In the next few verses, God uses anthropomorphic language, which simply means that he describes himself in human with, with human attributes. And he does so for our own understanding. And this is where we take, we have to realize that, that God isn't separating his justice or even his, his wrath or his righteousness or his holiness from any of, the, of his other attributes. He's going to emphasize in this next, next two verses his mercy and his love. And it comes across, and actually I listened to I listened to a sermon last week, and the person speaking made the very clear statement that this was an actual vacillation, an uncertainty of God in what I should do. And he says, This is not metaphorical, this isn't any, this is God not knowing. And I thought, you have a different God. You've taken attributes that are clearly revealed of God and you've reduced them to nothing, so much so that there is a difference in the God that we serve. So we don't want to do that. It's not an actual vacillation. It's not some emotional uh, confrontation that God is having within himself. He articulates it in that form so that we might understand. He's talking to humans. We're We're... A little lower than the angels, remember. We're, we're down here, and if you're like me, you're slow. So God's going to condescend and use anthropomorphic terms and descriptions so that we might understand. All of that, all of his attributes are in full play here. He's just highlighting a couple of them in particular. So with that stated, he says in verse 8, how shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Abma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. Verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. The Holy One in the midst of thee, I will not enter into the city. So here is this description of, that, that God gives us, and you see this desire that he has, and I'm going to use the same anthropomorphic terms because it helps us understand. I don't know how else to phrase it. This desire within God, how am I going to give you up? Just the other day, we were watching Little House on the Prairie. 
And there was the big test at school and Mary snuck out to the barn to study and nearly burned the barn down, right? You, if, if you've seen this one, you know, it's traumatic. Pa's out of town, mom goes out, saves the day. And she's distraught. She, she was fearful. She was scared of all the things that could have happened. And so in the middle of that, she gave an appropriate cons consequence and she stuck to that consequence. It was hard. She knew that she had given a consequence and she knew that maybe it was not exactly perfect. But she stuck to it knowing that it was the best for her daughter and for the rest of her family. Now, there was precedent to be set. But here's the thing. All throughout this, even though Mary had done something foolish, something that she knew she wasn't supposed to do, she didn't listen to the things that she was supposed to be doing. She was supposed to be in bed. Her sister reminded her, you should be sleeping, not reading. And she sneaks out to the barn and does it anyway. All the while, through all the entire episode, you have this concern, and Ma is expressing this concern. She's worried. She frets about Mary because there's something off. There's more to the story than that, but all throughout it, she sought restoration with her daughter. That was her intent. That was her heart. And she was unwilling that anything would come between them and, and would remain there. So she's doing everything that she can to sort of break this wall down and try to understand. And, and she's following up with the teacher and getting insight there that she can. She, she's just doing the things that she needed to do to try and find out what's going on. As we look at this, what we see here is the same kind of thing. No matter what we do, no matter what sin we may engage in, no matter what thing we may be doing that we know we shouldn't be doing, and maybe somebody reminded us even that I shouldn't be doing it, or here's the word of God coming to bear, thou shalt not, and I'm going to do it anyway. God says, how shall I give thee up? His heart to you and I is that of a parent and that I want to remain in relationship with you. I'm going to do the things necessary to break down the walls between us. He says that my repentings are kindled together. It's an interesting word. as we It's a different word than is elsewhere translated repent. And what it means is his compassions are kindled together. So here is God seeing the struggle that we may have, understanding everything within us, more than we may understand it ourselves, And he says, my compassions for you are kindled together. You see the, the, the word escaped me all of a sudden. The superfluous language that's being used. But my passions are kindled together. It isn't just that I have a desire or that there's a little bit. It's a raging fire. If I can use that, they're kindled together. It's burning within me. I want to extend compassion. That's, that's his heart toward them. It's his heart toward Israel. He doesn't want to deal with them as harshly as he's having to deal with them. To use anthropomorphic terms, God is perfectly just. He's doing everything. All of those things are in play. You see how it's hard to, and how we might be tempted to try to separate God from his, who he is. But all of those things are satisfied in his dealing with his people. He says, how shall I give thee up, O Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee like Adma and Zeboim? Has anybody ever heard of those two towns? You probably have. You just don't remember it. Turns me to Genesis 14. 
Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14, let's look at verse 8. And there went out of the king out of the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar, and they joined battle with them in the vale of Sidon. Probably pronounced some of those names wrong. I appreciate you bearing with me. So here we have some kings of some cities. And what are some of the prominent cities that we recognize? Well, we recognize Sodom and Gomorrah. Jump with me to Genesis 19. Genesis 19, verse 24. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. So here we have this link between uh, Adma and Zeboam. And Sodom and Gomorrah in their kings. Here we have the description of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities that are in that plain. Turn me to Deuteronomy chapter 29. We don't have to make any inference. God makes it very specific. And I'm convinced in some respects that he did it simply so that we understand what he's saying in Hosea. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 23. And that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning, that it is not sown nor beareth, nor any grass grows therein, like the overthrow of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboam, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. So a couple of things to unpack here, right? Number one, we have a comparison being made to Israel and these towns that were also equated with Sodom and Gomorrah. We've talked about, and not in great detail, but we've talked about the depravity of Israel in their ritualistic worship and their idolatry. We understand here is Sodom and Gomorrah, some of the things that they were being judged for there. We find those are the similar and the same things that Adam and Zeboam were judged for, and in, in many respects, the same things that Israel is being judged for. So we have this connection here. God says, listen, I don't want to punish you. I don't want to destroy you as a Adma and Zeboam, like I did with Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't want to treat you in that same respect. How shall I give you up? This desire of God to extend mercy. And he says in the next verse, in verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. In other words, I will not. Fierceness of my anger literally means my wrath. I'm not going to execute my wrath. I will not to return to destroy Ephraim. I am God and not man. He's not going to come back and sweep through the battlefield and make sure that every enemy is completely destroyed. That's what the reference is, is to him not returning. We find similar terms used in that exact context in the Old Testament where that was exactly what was happening. They went back to make sure that all the enemies were dead. God says, I'm not going to do that. In Psalm 78, Psalm 78, verses 38 
39. But he being full of compassion forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir it up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh and a wind that passes away and comes not again. We have a God that understands us better than we understand ourselves, as I've said too many times this morning. He understands that there is a struggle that we experience, that we are simply flesh. Not only that, as we get into the New Testament, we see the description of Jesus as our high priest, who is tempted in all ways as we are tempted, yet without sin. The long and short is that he understands. He gets it. Here is God, and he says, I'm, I'm filled with compassions. And so, therefore, as a result of that, in keeping with all of my attributes, the execution of justice and the extension of mercy, there will be a remnant left. I'm not going to come back through and make sure that everybody's gone. And not only that, even though it may be harsh, God is sending them into captivity and not destroying his people. He's sending them somewhere where they'll experience consequence without being eradicated. He says, I am God and not man. When, when God destroys, he doesn't do so in pleasure or as a man does to satisfy himself and to somehow seek vengeance. Now, vengeance, though it is God's, it isn't spiteful. Right? We, we need to understand that when we tend to think about vengeance, we, we want to see that person get what they get, right? We, we as society tend to like vigilantes, right? The, the comic book kind of hero because they're doing what we want to see done. They just don't happen to be the ones that God has called to do that job. But we like it because it satisfies this desire within us to see vengeance executed, not justice, vengeance. And God says, I'm not, I, I'm not like that. I'm, I'm not spiteful in that. Rather, it is God's nature to be just. So when he executes vengeance, it isn't a negative, it's not in that negative connotation. It's in an extension of who he is. It's a manifestation of his attributes. It's not selfish. It's not vengeful uh, as, as man conceives it, right? We've all, maybe we all have him, but most of us have seen the Princess Bride, and it's not Inigo Montoya who spends his entire life looking for the man who killed his father. And every person that he ever encounters that can wield the sword, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die. It's selfish. It in no way, shape, or form reflects God's character or his desire that none would perish. When God executes just, just, justice, his vengeance, it's distinct. And we, don't, we, we do a disservice and we misunderstand what God has revealed of himself to us in his word 
when we understand it in the context of human interaction. God is not a man. I am God and not man. Now, all throughout all of this, we, under, we understand that here is God, and he says, I, I'm, I'm a God and not man. And, and in that is also the idea that there are promises made and promises kept. That as we've studied through and we see the nation of Israel, uh, and they haven't kept their promises, and that's this, we, we've talked about that. Here is God on the other side of it where he has kept his promises. I want to look at three references here in, in first in Malachi chapter three. Malachi chapter three. <clears throat> he says in verse six, and this is in, remember in the context of God saying, I'm not going to execute the fierceness, the fullness, the the uh, magnitude of my wrath. I'm talking about mercy being extended to my people in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I am the Lord, I change not. I've made promises to my people and I'm going to keep them. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. You're not consumed because God has made promises, He's going to keep them. He's not like man that He would lie to us. Or that he would not deliver on those promises. He's not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness. They're not consumed because he's fulfilling the promises that he's made to them. That ultimately, uh, as we're going to find, that all nations through him might be blessed. That as we look at the redemptive purpose of God, all the way from Genesis, fulfilled all the way through Jesus Christ, and ultimately in through Revelation, where all of creation is redeemed, that we are not consumed because he is the Lord and he changes not, because he is God and not man. In Micah, turn back with me to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, verse 18 through 20. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever, because he delights in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. The extension of God's mercy is in the satisfaction of the promises that he's made. He's not going to deny himself. One more reference here in Numbers 23. Numbers 23, verse 19. And remember that in this scenario, we have Balaam, who is teaching Balak uh, how he might overthrow Israel. He's been hired by Balak to curse him. And God says, listen, Balaam, I realize that you want this money. You can't curse my people. They're my people. You're only going to speak what I tell you to speak. And so they take him up on the mountaintop, and he blesses Israel instead of curses them. 
And Balak's not ter terribly pleased about this scenario because I just hired you to curse them, not bless them. He says, I can only say what God wants me to say. But here's how you get them to fall, right? You send your young ladies in there. You, you bring them away. In other words, you draw them away from their God, and he'll have to correct them. He understood the process. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and shall he not do it? Or has he spoken, and shall he not make it good? In other words, God's going to do those things that he promised that he would do. He's going to bless all people through the lineage of Abraham. He's going to provide a redeemer for all of mankind that he promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. I want to close this morning by taking a look at a few things. As I said earlier, the church doesn't replace Israel. We're looking and studying through their, their problems, but ultimately we understand that Israel is an example. Those things that were written in the Old Testament, we read in the New Testament, are our example. And as we've talked about more, multiple times, we would expect that God would deal with us, his people, the same as he dealt with his people. God is not mocked whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. We understand that principle. That's what's happening to Israel. They were his people. They were they they were not forsaken or rejected by him, just as we're not forsaken and rejected by him. And though the eternal consequence of my sin may have been laid upon Jesus Christ, if I sin in this life, there may be consequence for it. So there's an example and a parallel to be made here. God was faithful to Israel. He kept the promises that he made to them, and we reap the benefit of many of those promises directly. We look back on the finished work of Jesus Christ, who, which is the way that God blessed all people through the lineage of Abraham. But in the midst of that, God has also made some promises to the church, to his people today, to you and I. Turn with me first to John 16. Now listen, we're only going to get a sampling. We could spend a month of Sundays and probably more looking at the promises that God has made to either Israel or to us, the church. But what I want to look at and understand is that if God is faithful to Israel, he will be faithful to you and I. John 16, we're going to open with a good one here. Verse 33. These things I have spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, there's more than one promise here. Number one, there's a promise that God made, that Jesus himself made to you and I, of tribulation, hardship, trouble. Right here in this world. Starts with T, it rhymes with P, it stands for pool. It's wrong, it's the other way around, right? But just see if you're paying attention. There's a promise that you and I, who stand here in a foreign country, as it were, as representatives, as the ambassadors of Jesus Christ, committed with the ministry of reconciliation, taking the message of Jesus Christ to the world, that we're going to encounter hardship. Just as Israel had those who were against them, that stood against them, that persecuted them, that, that, brought, that were used in some respects by God to correct them, and then others that were just straight up enemies. We're going to have some hardship. The second promise found in this 
Verse, however, is this, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I remember the first time I heard it and I, and I laughed and I still laugh because, right? So, somebody told me, listen, we win. I read the last chapter first, we win. And he was speaking about the Bible and here it is. The church does win. Jesus Christ is victorious. We stand there. The reality is that we are justified, that we are born again, that we are brought into his family, and that there is no turning. But there we are. He has overcome the world. There may be hardship in the world. There may be struggles. There may be those things. We, we encounter the effects and the realities of sin all around us. However, he has overcome the world. Turn with me back to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Somebody better at this than me would have probably put these in order. Doesn't matter. John 10 verse 27. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. We have this understanding that for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, that there is security. And that security lies not within us, but in something that is outside of us. It lies firmly and completely in the finished work and in the ability of God to keep everything that is, that is his. It isn't that I can jump out of his hand or, I, I, I mean, I'm just a man. We have this assurance and the security of the salvation that was freely provided us in Jesus Christ. And that God is not somehow reneging on that promise that we've blown it. And so here I'm, I'm done with you. Matthew 16, if you'll turn there with me. Matthew 16. Matthew 16, let's begin in verse 18 and 19. He says, I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whosoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Right? The idea here, and the thing that I want to walk away with, with full understanding, is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. You and I are part of the church. We are each members individually fit together by God himself within this entity that he has established Jesus Christ to be the head of. And each one of us has a unique position and opportunity to ex execute the graces given to us in service to the rest of the body. And we stand together against the common enemy. Here it's described as hell. But it's the kingdom contrary to the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is led by our enemy, uh, Satan himself. And one thing that I want you to understand is that these gates that are there are a defensive weapon. They're not something that, are, that they're coming at us with. The only person that I know of that used gates in, in any way, shape, or form as an offensive we weapon was Samson. And I'm convinced that, you know, when you can just 
tear the gates off their hinges and carry them out there. That's psychological warfare, and now your enemies are terrified. That's offensive. These gates are closed. They're trying to keep us out because when we go into the darkness, which we're called to do, we're to be in the world, we're to be in the darkness, but we're not part of it. We're those ambassadors. We're the light shining into the darkness, letting them see our good works, the way that we conduct ourselves in accordance with the word of God so that they can see those good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. I'll tell you this, the gates of hell are closed because they don't want us in there because when we go in there, we have victory. The truth will set you free. Thy word is truth. We have the assurance of victory. Here's the problem, and I'm going to leave you with this thought on this particular promise. Here's the problem. There are too many in the church today that run around that are contrary to Paul, who says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. I don't want to cause division. I don't want to cause hardship. I don't want to cause offense or whatever it may be. You're standing outside the gate, defeated. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no accusation that stands against you and I as believers in Jesus Christ in any valid way, shape, or form. Why? Because as we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he was made sin, and any accusation that could rightly be made against you was laid upon Jesus' account. He paid for it there on the cross so that you could be made righteousness. There is no condemnation for you and I as believers. Now, the world would tell you and I that there is condemnation. We would deceive ourselves, and we would believe the lie that we are condemned in those things because I failed, I struggled with sin, whatever it may be. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who are called according to his purposes. Matthew 28, turn to Matthew 28 with me. Does anybody know what we find in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20? There's at least three people here I know that should know the answer. You, I, I saw it over here. Anybody else? The Great Commission. Good. Probably everybody here should know that, but the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Just pause there. That's the commission. Jesus is saying, go into the gates of hell, grab those by the truth of the Holy Scriptures, and pull them out. Make disciples, make those who will walk in obedience, who understand and found themselves upon the word of God. But he doesn't stop there. The promise that we need to understand as we are engaged in this spiritual battle is this. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So be it. There it is, period. I am with you always. There's nowhere that we can go. There's nowhere that we can run. There's nowhere that we can hide where God is not, where Jesus himself isn't with us. When we, when we headlong in enemy territory, the captain of our salvation is side by side with us. Don't forget, you are yoked to him. He's right there. 
John 14, 2. Turn there with me. John 14, 2. This is the last one we're going to look at. As I said, it's just, it's just a sampling. But if we can look at the history of Israel and we see what God was faithfully doing there, then we can trust. And why do I say that? Because that's what the book of Hebrews says in chapter 12. We're going to get that here in just a moment. John 14, verse 2. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whether I go, you know, and the way you know. Pause there. First promise. Jesus is coming back. He went somewhere to prepare a place for us. And he says, if I go, I'm coming back. And I'm going to receive you and we're going to go there. That is the first assurance, the first thing that we can absolutely trust. When we talk about hope for you and I as believers, that is part of the hope for believers. That we get to abide in his presence forever. Now, there's all kinds of ideas about what that looks like. The Bible describes it in figurative and, and, and pictorial terms, trying to, in my understanding, to help us understand. But I think we have just a very brief and transient glimpse into what it's really like. First, Jesus says, listen, I'm going, I'm coming back, and I'm taking you with me. He's coming back. He says, and he says, where I go, you know, and the way you know. They just consider these are his disciples. These are the guys that have been spending time with him. He says, you already know the way. You know how to get there. Now, Thomas responds, Lord, we know not whether you go, and how can we know the way? If we don't know where you're going, how can we? We pick on Thomas a lot, but here we pick on Peter a lot, too. But this is an instance where Thomas was slower than Peter. Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto me, but unto the Father, but by me. Jesus is telling, listen, I am the way. I've already talked to you about this, that, that I am the way. I am the only door in. I'm the only singular access to the Father by faith in me alone. And if you want to get to the place that I'm going, you have to come through me. Not some other way, not some other blending of any other ways, not some syncretization of pagan idols and Christianity or tradition and other things, which is where Israel finds themselves. No, there's this promised return, this looking forward to Jesus Christ coming and the certainty that because I am in Christ, because there is the only access, I have the surety that's that's it. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. He gives us the earnest of his spirit, the spirit of adoption, whereby we can cry, Abba, Father. Two references as we close this morning to take away here. We have the promises of God in very representative form and shorthand, so to speak. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about worship in, in regard to our relationship with God. As we looked in the Psalms this morning, we see again and again, we see this response to the faithfulness of God and the faith and the response, the appropriate response, as described by those Psalms, is obedience, is, is worship. In Romans 1, I beseech you, therefore, excuse me, Romans 12, 1, 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And I've said it this way many times. It's the least that I can do. It is my reasonable service. It is no big deal for me to lay down every aspect of my life, to walk in obedience and submission to who God is because of all that he's provided in Jesus Christ. And that I would further go on and not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of my mind, that I may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Right, we understand we're in that battle. And that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty to pulling down the strongholds. And as a result of that, we take every thought captive to the mind of Christ. If I want to think like Jesus Christ, I'm going to have to know what he said. He's revealed himself. He was the word that took on flesh. And here is the word in paper and ink. That's a little crass. I, I didn't think it was going to quite roll off the tongue that way. Apologize. But here it is, right? This is it. If I want to think like Jesus, I need to know what the word of God says. I need to be that, that, that person who is studying it, rightly dividing it. And secondly, if, the, if God is faithful and we see all of the faithfulnesses of God throughout generation after generation, since the beginning of time, literally since the beginning of time, how can I, how can I think anything else other than I can safely trust in him? That's the whole point of the first few verses of Hebrews 12. Here are the faithfulnesses of God all throughout history in chapter 11. All of these people looking forward to and rightly responding to God and his trustworthiness. Therefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And is set down at the right hand of God, right hand of the throne of God. If we look at the faithfulness of God to Israel, and we expect that he would deal with his people, the church, in the same way, because that's the example that he has set forth for us, and we find that confirmed here in Scripture, why would we do anything different? Why would we do anything that walk in the same faith that Abel and Abraham and Noah and David, and Gideon, and Samson, and all of these other heroes of the faith walked in. Knowing that even if it was necessary, God would raise people from the dead to accomplish his promises. That he would intervene on their behalf so that he might extend his love towards them and that they might be better representations of who he is to a lost and dying world. He is faithful and he's proved his faithfulness since the beginning of time. Let's pray and then we'll worship. Father, we praise you for the opportunity to be in your word this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you take uh, my stammering tongue and my time of study, Lord, that you multiply that for your honor and glory. For the edification of your church, the benefit of those who are here, 
and those that hear. We praise you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the finished work that he's accomplished, Lord, and the fruit of that within our lives. We pray, Lord, for your grace that we might serve you acceptably as your word says. And God, this morning, as we have opportunity to praise you, to sing with praise and adoration and thanksgiving for all that you've done and for who you are, Lord, I pray that it would be the offering of our lips. We ask this now and we say this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.